You know what that intro music means. Good evening. Welcome to Theory Fight Night, or whatever time of day it is for you. Uh, more accurately, this is kind of political theory fight night, which is what happens when you let Victor choose the <laughs> Thanks very much. At least buddy. there was some like ed edge lordy post structuralists for you to enjoy. Yeah. Um, this is our actually of, of the fight nights. This is our third Jacques in a row. <laughs> oh yeah, shit! I didn't even realize that the last two featured Jacques Derrida. And and while I was taking my my notes for this episode, I just wanted to give a shout out to the OG Jacques. This is of course Brian Jacques, who first inspired my reading of fantasy in the broadest sense, which I continue. To this day, um, do you guys know who that is? No idea who that is. The guy who wrote Red Ball. <laughs> yeah, I never read the books. I watched the show for a couple seasons. Um, never really got into it though. Never, never enough. Fueled to pick up the books. my childhood in the '90s with books and TV shows. Yeah, they were great. It's a Arthurian anthropomorphic mice, <laughs> but as a nine-year-old. I can remember crying twice, or for two reasons at least. One, because I didn't have any friends, and two, <laughs> because Martin the Warrior, who is a mouse, uh, his girlfriend mouse got killed by a slave-owning weasel, and then <laughs> he had to leave all of his friends. So, yes, I felt great empathy to the point of tears for a fictional sword-wielding mouse. And isn't it the tragic irony that the interest by which you cope with having no friends also that which guarantees that you will not have any friends in the future by virtue of those interests more friends it's okay yeah huh. yeah i feel that um unlike medieval animal farm fiction we we here do not feel that strange women in ponds handing out swords is a basis for a system of government <laughs> <laughs> That's critical. Nice way theory. to wrap in a bunch of pop culture references uh, into a singular hole. There, what's that? Are, are we suddenly going to become a narco syndicalist? Is that the idea? We must learn oh, from the mice. Chomsky. I don't know. Can you relate Chomsky to this? I guess uh, Habermas and Honeth are probably very aware of Chomsky. Yeah. And the oh, universal yeah, sure. grammar. We haven't even actually said what we're doing today. Yeah. Who is yet. brawling here? Who is brawling? It is fight night. Um, on one side of the screen, player one, insert coin. Jacques Ranciere, so our, our third Jacques of the mentioned in the hour, and insert coin player two, Axel Honeth. And you might be asking, who the hell is that? Well, Victor <laughs> is going to tell you. Again, yeah, so he he's... picked this episode. Don't worry, uh, someone else will be picking next week. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hate this this much, Pills? Well, I, I didn't know who he was. But I could, really? I felt like I was reading Habermas. And sure enough, when I checked, he was supervised by Habermas. And at least I know that he has one thing in common with Habermas, and that it, he was born, ostensibly born, into this world to lose debates. Because <laughs> Habermas, as you know, was handedly defeated by Gautamer, Lumen, Foucault, and I don't know if Rawls beat him or not. Of course, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have read that one. But yeah. uh, I feel like uh, really? he's carrying I mean, on the tradition here. 
I don't know anybody who thinks that Gautamer <laughs> won that debate. I agree that he won. The Derrida seems to have won the debate against him. Even he seemed to concede that. But it's also it's also Gautamer's worth mentioning. Gautamer's reputation has kind of gone downhill since some of the Nazi connections came up. I was just going to say it's worth also stressing that in this case, like the verses is a very direct verses. It's actually in a book, uh, like published, which is like specifically framed as a, like a debate between the two thinkers, which made it. Uh, I guess kind of easy for us to because they had, there's even a section in the book where they're going back and forth on certain points. So I thought that made for interesting reading, in my opinion, at least. And I thought there was enough post-structuralism and stuff. And Rancière was interesting enough that I was hoping that you guys would still find it interesting. Yeah, I shouldn't pick on you because it's also all about recognition. And we've constantly, it feels like, bring brought up the dialectic of recognition. So this is the dialectic of recognition as a foundation for politics. Which is Honneth's view. Honneth, yeah. Or is that how it's pronounced? Honneth? I don't know. I don't Honneth. Know. I hear it. Hon. I think. Who knows? Eric, you know German. What do you say, Honneth? I don't know. So it's did the, Does he have an umlau on his own? No. Then no. it's probably Honneth. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I mean, I, so I can explain. I mean, you just said he was supervised by Habermas, but yeah, he's a political theorist who is like does come from that lineage of critical theory via Habermas. So in that case, isn't really critical theory or true critical theory because, and he tends to come down more on the liberal side, and he he grounds a lot of his um, political thought on this kind of dialectic of recognition. He wants to ground like justice claims on this idea that there's these spheres of recognition that. Um, he kind of aligns up with um, a Hegelian dialectic of recognition of sort of how the subject develops through being recognized by others. And he kind of infers from that and makes his own version of that and tries to say that justice claims are grounded on like a lack of being recognized and or in other words, um, that the subjectivity of, of the of the citizens in this political state haven't sufficiently developed or are def are suffer some deficit in a sphere of recognition and and he said basically says like justice claims and emancipatory struggles are really just struggles for recognition um based on those dialectics if you want to know something funny uh pills you're not the only one who found his work a little bit bland um so back in 2014 axel honneth wrote actually a pretty good book called freedom's right uh that i quite enjoy and i'll probably draw some arguments for it when discussing this uh, but he released a book just two years later called The Idea of Socialism, where he said the number one accusation leveled at this book was it was boring, not particularly radical, and didn't <laughs> say anything interesting. So I wrote this book, The Idea of Socialism, to just say, no, 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 I am actually like radical enough. You know, we can resuscitate this socialist ideal in like the 2010s, you know, and that'll be kind of hip and different, right? So don't worry, he seems to have some anxiety about this uh, as well as a third generation Frankfurt schooler. Yeah. Gotta get back to that radical core. I love how it's like a valid critique now that your book is boring and so that somehow indicts your theory. I mean, even Kant wrote that about his own critique when he wrote the prolegomena after the first critique. He said this is like long, dense, boring tract that nobody's going to read. And he said that about himself. Well, like Freedom's Right is a good book. And I think one of the arguments that he kind of rehearsed here about the importance of social or civic freedom, as it's sometimes called, is actually extremely important and legitimate as a critic critique of right Hegelians, uh, Hegelianism. And it's worth noting that one of the things that Honneth and the others did that I think was genuinely innovative is in the 1980s, um, Hegel was kind of going through one of his you know, periodic tenures as kind of an enemy on the left. And uh, starting in the 1990s, you had these kind of center left figures like Honneth, 
like Shayla Benabib, uh, like Charles Taylor, probably most prominently in his book uh, essay, The Politics of Res Recognition, that kind of resuscitated his rec uh, reputation and tried to use him to advocate for multicultural, pluralistic, broadly social democratic policies, right? And Honneth is very much in that school. But as the Quantfellows have said, a lot of people don't find his kind of tolerant, multicultural, democratic, social democracy all that interesting. So he seems to be trying to move in a bit more of a radical direction recently, a la, you know, this resuscitation of the idea of socialism and workplace democracy in his recent. I guess for our audience to help you locate Honneth, he, he is the current fourth generation leader of the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt, Germany, which is housed and originally known as the Frankfurt School. So after, um, after Horkheimer, Somebody took over. Who was it? Was it? It wasn't Marcuse, was it? it was some. I think there was a sort of like a a um, a period where they were all in America after after Horkheimer, kind of. Yeah, in the 1930s, what happened is they all had to flee Nazi Germany, and it's actually Eric Fromm uh, who was able to get them an appointment at Columbia. It's actually yeah, kind of an interesting story because right. what happened is Fromm was originally the only person who got an appointment at Columbia, uh, and his condition for them accepting him. Uh, was he had to bring the, they had to bring the whole institution along. And originally, Columbia said, no, we don't want to bring all these German guys. But Fromm was so hot at that point that eventually he got his way. And so everybody kind of transitioned over there. Wait, um, if they were at Columbia, why were they all living in Cali? I, I don't know. I imagine that they stayed there for a little while and then they transitioned outwards afterwards. I also don't imagine that there was really a big expectation that they spent a lot of time teaching. You know, it seemed like Adorno and Horkheimer wanted to spend as little time there as possible from yeah. judging by their writing. And then and then after this sort of uh, period of, of uh, exile, they came back and, and the third wave was headed by Jürgen Habermas, who is who became extremely old as people do over time. And then um, <laughs> the, least the next guy books. took over, which Still is- alive. Uh, Honeth, yeah, and Hon I mean, Honeth is no spring chicken himself, but uh, Honeth is the fourth, sort of the leader of the fourth wave of the Frankfurt School. Becoming ever more liberal each wave. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and to yeah. the other side of the debate, I yeah, was also surprised to learn that Ranciere is still alive, given that he has, I mean, I don't know this at all, but I assume that he has the uh, vices of most French academics. And I was surprised, but he's, I don't know, must be in his mid 80s because he was uh, kicking it with Althusser and Derrida in the 60s already. So um, I'm a bit of a Ranciere head, um, out of practice, I should say, out of practice Ranciere head. But as some of our listeners, actually most probably do not know, I have a degree in art and when artists want to read a philosopher, they've they've picked something that says aesthetics on it and that's short. So because it's short <laughs> and because it says aesthetics on it, uh, Ranciere's politics of aesthetics is commonly read by artists, also commonly misread by artists because they have a little bit of a difficult time reading typically. So I learned this book a few times uh, during art theory courses. Which book? The Politics of Aesthetics. Oh, yeah. So do you want to give a rundown then of what? So I already said that Honneth tries to ground his political theory on recognition, a dialectic of recognition, kind of like I think he I think what Honneth is also doing is which he gets criticized relentlessly by Ranciere for of like 
trying to develop a thick account of subjectivity because like he, he appeals to categories like suffering. He appeals to categories like recognition and, and there's some, another category like, um, you know, the opposition between the individual and the community kind of thing. Well, that too, the opposition yeah. between the individual and the community, but also like these spheres of recognition all have also have to do with like the health of subjectivity and how well it functions. So he has kind of like a psychoanalytic, a psychological account of like subjectivity and how, um, you know, their ability to participate in these various spheres of society ultimately are like the ways that you can make justice and normative claims. And I think Rancière comes at it from a very different perspective, obviously. So I don't know if uh, I, I'm also I will admit that um, I'm actually a, a fan of both of these thinkers. I think uh, I probably come down a little bit more on the side of Rancière, at least in this specific text. But I think that they both make mistakes and they both make good points in this. But I don't know, Pills, if you want as the self described Rancière head, what's what does he ground his politics on? Well, he, I mean, the easiest way to describe him is as a deconstructionist, um, but he makes a politics of aesthetics in the sense that you need, or that, that in politics, at least in capitalism, uh, you don't really have a choice to, you don't have a, re, a chance to reorganize sense. And he means sense in like the Kantian sense of sense. Sense perception. Where... Uh, if you're if you're some sort of artist, and not specifically artist, right? We have a broader sense of aesthetics here, but a formal rearrangement of the material world, either through poetry or art or some kind of some kind of reorganization, a material organization, um, allows you to reorganize the world sensually in some way. Yeah, um, aesthetics isn't like a theory of beauty anymore in in a lot of these modern texts. It it has that broader meaning of sense experience, like aesthetic meaning the opposite of anesthetic when you don't feel anything. Right, right. And the idea is that like in capitalism, if you don't have capital, you don't have political power, but everybody has aesthetic power. Like anyone has the capacity to uh, you know, write write poetry, for example. So a radical politics in that sense. And then for him, politics is always deconstructive. I think he says all politics is is insurrectionary for me. Um, and this is one of the things that Hanath just kind of denies it. He just goes uh, later in this text. I don't get it. I think he says something like, I'm sure there's an argument here, but I couldn't find it. So here's three possible options for what Rancière means. But yeah, <laughs> if you if you know Derrida well as uh as we we kind of do then uh that's that's the approach that Rancière takes to politics is that if if you operate from the center out where we might say is from the top down then it isn't politics because a politics of maintaining the center is the opposite of doing politics so if you're maintaining something as it stands then you're doing nothing thus you have no power Thus, you are not a political actor at that point. Right. And I think like the, well, go ahead, Eric. I was just going to say he has some very interesting ways he defines these terms, things he says about politics. Like um, for him, for him, um, what what politics actually implies is a kind of equality, right? Because he says things like, um, like a king who has a divine mandate to rule that's not politics or a bureaucracy or a 
a bureaucracy of experts, let's say, who who have this mandate to rule based on their greater knowledge of things. That's not politics either, because a political system implies that the government is at least ruling on behalf of those who have no power to make decisions, rather than the claim that this group of people has the authorization to make decisions, so they are the ones in charge. So he kind of, the reason he defines politics as as kind of insurrectionary or political action as insurrectionary is because he has this sort of definition of politics that immediately excludes anything that's anti-democratic from being called politics at all. Yeah, politics can only occur where the rulers do not have the right to rule, which means that their rulership is always in question. I mean, I found it interesting, but I mean, the po- politics is originally, I mean, he does quote Aristotle, but Aristotle also talks about politics as centered on the polis, the city. I don't know how that ties in, but it seems like he's got a very kind of idiosyncratic way of defining politics. Yeah, well, my it was my understanding that he defines politics uh, like, so there's, he makes this distinction between the police and politics, right? So the politics are any moments that 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 interrupt or create a rupture in the police and what he means by the police is all the like business as usual norms that exist in society um are just like maintaining their own inner logic and like the nothing changes hegemony and so for him that's why like even elections in a liberal democracy aren't politics they're actually the police because all of those elections are just like the same thing happening. There's nothing new going on here. It's just like another permutation of like the existing sensible world understanding of it. And it, and everything, all the forces that maintain that business as usual sense of the world is what he calls the police and not politics. Can't have politics in that. Politics is the only one that actually gets ruptured somehow um, by like that we start to change um, how we perceive or think about uh, these kinds of values. They're reconfigured, they're reconfigured in some new way. And then, uh, so that's in that sense, that's another sense in which his definition of politics is insurrectionary because it can only actually occur when the sort of business as usual, that's my kind of understanding term that I'm using, is interrupted and disrupted somehow to make space for something else to emerge, which well then, Subsequently, I don't think he says it in this text, but he does in other texts. It's gonna, um, uh, it's only gonna be momentary. Um, this, I think, Rancière is in this tradition. Uh, there's a couple others in his uh, field of thought who also think about politics as the moment of politics, right? It's like this momentary rupture, and then there's a reconfiguration. That's very much of the police. Position. Yeah, there's a reconfiguration of the police. And then there's a new police order that then is different. Maybe it's better, but we're not going to make a value judgment about it. But it's not politic politics. As soon as things are back to a norm, it's not politics anymore. That's my well, understanding. I wanted to say that I personally found this debate broadly to be very, very tedious. Uh, not because they didn't say interesting things, but because there was a lot of talking past one another. And I think both of them didn't really say anything that really amounted to anything of great gravitas. Right? Rancière took a fairly common post-structuralist position, which is that this fixation that normal political theorists take on locating centers of power and criticizing them, and then trying to talk about countervailing centers of power, has a kind of intellectualist prejudice to it because it allows the intellectual to speak about where power comes from and where it should be situated. And I think that that's absolutely an accusation you can make 
against Hanath, right? 100%. And I do like this idea, as any hippie does, of kind of narrativizing politics by not privileging one source of discourse over another, but allowing people to speak of their aesthetic experiences in the kind of broad sense that Eric was talking about uh, and leaving things open to continuous interrogation, right? But, you know, in terms of what that would mean concretely, I think find that the answer very, very thin. Uh, not only that, he claims, I think rightly, that this doesn't lead to relativism as it doesn't. Uh, but I do think that we need to assume the burdens of moral judgment at some point and point out that not all narratives are equal, right? I could sit here listening to an alt-right personality all day long. He can articulate why it is that he suffered a great deal at the hands of this minority and this woman and she broke up with him and what a bitch is she. Uh, but I have very in little interest in granting that any kind of political legitimacy, right? Yeah, well, you're shifting the terms of the debate by saying that because he doesn't give institutional examples or doesn't want institutional examples, that means that it's a thin account of democracy because that's not what his purpose is. And well, we should say, we I should say, go back to Ranciere's um, coming up in the French Academy where he fits there. He was uh, uh, studied under Althusser, I believe, and then split with Althusser. Quite famously, a, uh, because Althusser's, Althusser's revolutionary idea was that first, we're going to have an intellectual vanguard that's going to come up with all the ideas for the revolution. And mm -hmm. the point is, I mean, underlying that is the proletariat, the working class, they're too stupid to be able to, you know, lead an uprising themselves. And Ranciere mm -hmm. took great offense to this idea and said, like, all the the effective revolutions that we can ever point to are always spontaneous. The intellectuals theorize it after it's done, which again, back to what we talked about at the very beginning, why he writes on the uh, politics of aesthetics is that in aesthetics, everybody is equal. Politically, if we want to talk about politi politics in the sense that you're making it right here, then not everybody's equal. Then if you more or less, if you have money or can get access to money and backers, then you can have a, a political life. Mm -hmm. But in the aesthetic life, everybody potentially has a life, and that's where we see uh, mass mass uprisings. What do you mean by what do you mean by aesthetics is inherently equal? I'm not sure I follow. Uh, because for him, that's has to do with the sense common common sense. Everyone has a contribution to common sense and particular particular to him is through art so art and broad yeah, no, nobody is qualified sense. nobody is qualified to rule is is yeah. another way i think he puts so everyone's it. equally not qualified to rule is that kind of the idea yeah more or less that's why he says the one principle of politics is always equality so if equality is not on the table then politics is also not on the table Right, because if important, you normalize yeah. something like a meritocracy, right, wherein the best people are supposed to rule, right, then you're getting away from that idea. Or again, with like a monarchy with a divine mandate, right, you're getting then you're getting away from that because they're the only ones qualified to rule. Yeah, every single every single police order is premised on an exclusion. Is like an important point that I think Ranciere makes. So like any any sort of like sensible business as usual structure of the world where we're like, these are our values. It's always going to be in excluding some group or someone and the police or the being uh, a political moment is when those excluded will come in, interrupt that police order. But sorry. Yeah, Mark, we, we should say also just because we're going to keep using the term throughout the episode. Police yeah. doesn't mean like what we think of as cops. Much. Police is like the state. 
Well, it's not just the state, though, isn't it? Like also the dominant values of society, too. Yeah, I guess you could say the it, the whole not just the ideological state apparatuses, but the ideological state apparatuses it's, as well. Yeah. It's kind of a, a discursive and uh, practical consensus yeah. that goes on, and the idea is to sort of form a break with that consensus with political action. It's a good way of putting it. Introduce previously excluded voices into the conversation and then then there's this sort of circle of then it, then it kind of becomes normalized again and you fall back into the police state that's that's what I, kind of what i got out of it but it's important to note that ron sierre is also an archivist so he did loads and loads of work in the in the 1970s in the archives looking at the uh history of the french working class movements and reading the works of French working class people who participated in various kinds of political action and discourse as well. So he draws quite a bit. It's not like his, it's all kind of groundless theory as, as we might think of it. It's, it's, it's grounded in, in some careful analysis of some actual historical stuff as well. So he's not less historical in his orientation than the Frankfurt scholars would be. Well, this is what I wanted to say though. I think again, the reason for this kind of dispute that Pills is highlighting is, again, a kind of methodological one, right? And that they're coming at things from two very different perspectives. And you know, the tradition of French aesthetics, uh, kind of colored by French Marxism and the revolutionary tradition, uh, and the tradition of a kind of political science appropriation of Frankfurt School themes that you see circa like Habermas and others, right? So one of the things that you find with French aesthetic theory, and I think actually Badiou does a lot better uh, at expressing these kinds of points than Rossière does in this essay, uh, is this fixation on the idea of a real politics of the event, as he calls it, right? Uh, that's revolutionary, where everything genuinely comes under contestation, and where previously excluded groups that weren't able to participate in the routine police uh, of their country are actually incorporated because the legitimation of the system breaks down and everything comes under question, right? Uh, and this is very much something that I think derives from their revolutionary history, right? And the kind of aestheticization uh, of the French Revolution, 1789, the almost every French thinker tends to engage in, right? Uh, for everyone else in the world who's not French, right? Uh, like someone like Axel Honneth, the question almost immediately becomes, okay, there's this moment uh, of radical inclusion delegitimation that occurs that's actually extremely productive because now you can ask political questions that you weren't able to before, but how are you going to cash that out practically? And this is a very serious problem, right? Because after the revolution is gone and you tear things down, year one is established, you need to build something in its place. Uh, and the problem with that is every kind of political system that we've devised thus far inherently, as Ron Sierra points out, incorporates exclusions into its very makeup, right? Even the kind of radical social democracy or socialist democracy that someone like Honneth would want to put forward right now is predicated on a kind of exclusion, the exclusion of citizen and non-citizen, which is why I think Ron Sierra is right to bring up um, how difficult it has been for France to incorporate people like the Algerians uh, into the polity, right? Uh, but it's not clear how it is that you can overcome that. And I think it's right to actually raise that question the way that he does Honneth, right? Which well, is to say, I'll look, you know, if you want a more participatory political system, uh, you can't just aestheticize that. It's going to take really difficult technical questions, involve very difficult questions about who gets to participate, in what way, through what institutions, in what time, uh, through what kind of mechanisms, most of which are really not all that aesthetically interesting because, frankly, they're fairly practical questions that most theorists find pretty boring. Well, aesthetics and practice would be kind of tightly linked in this case, wouldn't it be? Yeah, you have sort of sense as meaning, which links to knowledge, 
and epistemology, and then you have sense as perception, sure. which links to everyday existence, which is kind of Ranciere's, the reason Ranciere has this play on disagreement, which you have a disagreement between like what you know and what the world, how the world actually like appears to you in a practical kind of everyday sense. Yeah. I mean, the one criticism oh. that I'd really raise upon it, and this, sorry, Victor, I'll let you know that, is that he's really, he, he remains like a lot of these left Hegelians are, the kind of center left Hegelians, people like Taylor, Benabib, uh, and Honneth. He's attracted to this idea of organic metaphors for society and politics, right? That you see Hegel espouse uh, in the philosophy of right. That society is best conceived as an organism. It functions well when it incorporates uh, everybody under certain egalitarian terms, yes, but qualified egalitarian terms. Uh, and if these break down, what you're going to see is disruption, uh, chaos, and the misfunctioning or the malfunctioning of the social organism. And the usual left Hegelian argument, rather like he's saying, is that the way to solve this is more democracy, more recognition for groups that have previously been excluded, uh, and more participatory forms of politics, all of which I like, right? Uh, but I do think that you could raise a legitimate Rossierian objection, which is that by normalizing social conflict, by incorporating it into a kind of social organism, uh, like the nation state structure that Hans remains attracted to. Uh, you also kind of blunt the edge of some of these radical disparities that we see in society uh, by neutering them. And this is a critique. No, you just perpetuate them because every creating a center and just what you're doing now, asking, give me, give me the practical solutions, which Eric is right to point out. They are aesthetic. Give me the practical solutions is necessarily going to be part of that hegemony. The, yeah. the, the point that Ranciere is making is that it's never done. So when your goal is equality, your telos of your society is equality, then that's never done because that's an, yeah, yeah, an, 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 a goal that's irreconcilable with reality. But it, you can always do something. Sure, sure. But what I'm saying is that ultimately there are practical questions you can ask even about something like equality. Right. There's a very good book by T.M. Scanlon where he asks equality of what. Right. Uh, equality can be measured along a huge number of different metrics, right? Yeah, and I think equality. that's what Rancière is saying. You can have resources, yeah, that a bit. resources, abilities, opportunities, equality of outcome, equality Capacities. of equality of punishment, like we talked about in our last episode. So hmm. the whole thing is to keep that thing at the center of politics, and that is for Rancière the center of politics. So you you're kind of blunting the actual critique by saying, well, it's thin because he doesn't give me a practical outlook or a practical model for what society should look like. Because that's not well, the it, point. Okay, but it, but it is then, though, in my opinion, right? Because ultimately, Yeah, I know, I know you think that. Get, 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 yeah, but I'm right. So give me a second. And the reason is that <laughs> these kind of practical political questions are actually what most everyday politics are about, right? Like when we're talking about something, let's go to Eric's example. Should we have a formally equal meritocracy or should we have a more substantially equal social democracy? Right. Uh, these are very technical questions that will involve a great deal of highly specified considerations about how to organize the economy, how to redistribute goods, what kind of institutions we should create, uh, both at the macro and the micro level, most of which are frankly pretty boring. Right. They're things that policymakers are more concerned with rather than political theorists. But they are absolutely essential uh, to actually answering this question in a meaningful way. Right. Uh, and to just aestheticize them by saying, well, we're going to endlessly postpone this by saying that this is continuous negotiation. I agree that that's true, right? But at some point, we also have to assume the burdens of moral judgment and say that this is what equality is going to look like as instantiated in our political community right now, and to try to make it as inclusive and as egalitarian as possible, and to specify what that would actually entail at any given place and at any given time. 
I'll, I'll give a very good example. Right? Before like, you give the, an example, now you're just glossing this and not addressing why he's bringing this idea up in the first place, which is to counter the idea of recognition as the foundation of politics. Yeah, but I've already said I don't agree with that. Okay, well, then you're making an extraneous argument to the text. I'm sorry not to cut you off, but we have to stay on point here. If the issue is that you cannot demand of someone that he assemble a model politic for you when politics is something that accounts for juridical judgments in order to displace them because those judgments are always going to displace particular action. Sure. Yeah, I mean, isn't the idea that like you lay out those blueprints for the best kind of society, right? And you've already in that sense divorced them from practice because you've said what we should be doing and these are the steps we need to follow. And you've already excluded so many people from this discourse because you're having this sort of expert argument about what is the best sort of society and there's all these technical questions which implies that normal people can't answer these technical questions and what you're really doing is getting at the disagreement between how are we supposed to be normative how do we make normative claims what are their proper place do they come before the sensible every day or do they sort of follow from it as ranciere would say i mean the normative is one of the central points of disagreement here like any yeah. question how should society be what should we do like give me the next step the practical solution to this problem all of these are normative questions and if you just say well that's what we need that's what we need then you're just exactly glossing over ranciere's entire like a huge pillar of his critique of all of this well i wanted to i'm I've been I've been wanting to say something okay for for a little while and I think what you just said Eric touches on exactly what I wanted to say which is to me it seemed like it was hard to tell with Ranciere whether he was really offering uh anything normative or if it was really just descriptive right because in a way it seems like he's just describing and redefining what politics what the everyday what the like institutional ideological structures are what those moments are but he's not saying anything about like how things should be and i mean so but then he like and i think that my issue with him is that it seems like he's trying to smuggle in normativity with but like avoiding saying it and and you know yeah, i think that, that it can be located <laughs> they always do that yeah of course they always do that it's true. but and like so hold on let me finish here so uh, it's located i think in i mean we talk about exclusion right so like i think that from a ranciarian perspective they get to you know and i i mean i like ranciere but i think that they, it does kind of enable a certain kind of broad and like kind of um 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 uh, affectively satisfying stance where you get to be like well we're just worried about exclusion and it's like but without actually saying that exclusion matters and it seems to me that like there's certain kind like so when he makes the claim that like every single police order in, in that case the ideological institutional structure is premised on some kind of an exclusion but again he remains apparently neutral on whether or not that's a good or bad thing and it seems to me that like we want some exclusions right like we yeah. want an exclusion of i don't know white nationalists we want an exclusion of certain things so like yeah like exclusion of course it's premised but that's what i mean by there's like an ambiguity i mean maybe it's not ambiguous maybe he's just offering a descriptive account and like that's what matters and in which case if it's descriptive then it's then it's not it, then maybe it's not even a criticism to say he's not offering a normative account because ultimately that he's just trying to give a description of politics but at the same time when he talks about like it's an it's an eruption and an exemplification of like equality of excluded people rearing their head disrupting it sounds very like heroic and normative um yeah. so anyway that, that was just like the the sort of like 
oscillating back and forth between as I was reading it between being like, this is normative. It's not normative. And, you know, he even says somewhere like uh, I think it's like when he's responding to well, of course, he's always responding to, to Hanath about normativity. I think it's on uh, page 119, 120. Right. And he's like, you know, it's not that we uh, base things on or we're trying to have a, a political eruption that's based on trying to generate um, new recognition or address certain kinds of pathologies of uh, in, in people's lack of recognition. But he says, but people do it in order to construct another world, right? Uh, to create a new space. And he uses the example of Rosa Parks, right? Like she didn't sit on a on, on a particular place on the bus because um, she was suffering. This is about suffering. Uh, but because she just was wanted to um, create a different kind of world. And I felt that this was a very strange and ambiguous claim to just be like, well, it's not premised on some kind of suffering. It's really just imagining a new world. And that to me seems like either smuggling in normativity or just being uh, shifty and not admitting what your actual commitments are. So I don't know. That was. Yeah. I mean, I see why you say that, but it's his account of politics and his idiosyncratic version of it that makes him push back on that because politics is spontaneous. That is, it can't be determined. So if Rosa Parks sat at the front of the bus because she was, I don't know, you know, suffering from a lack of respect or a lack of recognition, then the story is just that she got fed up and so did politics as a result. But that's not spontaneous then. That's like dialectical. But spontaneous politics or insurrectionary politics performs the political act for the world they want to create, not because of what's happening in this one. And that's the important distinction there. Yeah. I, I want to follow this up by just giving an example of actually something that many of the Frankfurt schoolers have started to talk about, third, fourth generation Frankfurt schoolers talk about, that's actually uh, indicatory of how it is that this can be carried out at the kind of micro-political lens. So just you know, in answer to kind of Eric's question, I don't think Herring, like Honneth is saying that experts should kind of resolve these questions. What he's saying is that they're technical questions that are best answered democratically. Right. In fact, he's very critical of Hegel precisely for actually assuming that we should have a bureaucratic universal class uh, that assumes it has the kind of answers to these questions and is going to manage them on behalf of society. I mean, he thinks that's wrong and he insists on that. The in Vanguard this text Party. Yeah. And I think he, he's very critical of Leninism for exactly that reason. Right. But what I mean by the fact that, you know, you can't avoid the burdens of moral judgment uh, and determining the kind of forms that inclusion and exclusion will take uh, is that oftentimes the kind of practicality of these questions has to be answered in some way, shape, or form. And it's not always clear what the answer is going to be. Uh, And approaching them purely from an aesthetic level loses some of the grain that appears when we try to tackle these things in their concreteness. And one example I'll give that a lot of attention to was given, uh, was in Canada in 2015, uh, Loyola versus Quebec. Has anyone here heard of this case at the Supreme Court? Nay. Okay, so it's a big case uh, that concerns how to actually recognize religious minorities in Canada, in the education system. Uh, And one of the things that the court had to ask was, what would it mean to have the most inclusive kind of education system at the primary level? Does it mean that you teach that religion is all false, right? And teach a purely secular kind of religious education. Well, some people would say that that's extremely discriminatory towards people who have religious beliefs, right? Do you teach that all religions are equal, right? People say, well, that could also be discriminatory because if I teach that all religions are equal, but I hold to a concrete religious viewpoint, like I'm a Roman Catholic in this case, then teaching of me that my religion is just the same as someone else kind of discriminates me against me in a certain sense, right? And then other people have said, well, we should just have private schools for all different religious denominations, uh, and everyone should be taught that their religion is right within that silo, 
right? Uh, this is a very difficult question to answer, and it's not clear what the most inclusive form of education would be. And then but atheists worth, learn on the streets. Yeah, exactly. And it's not worth noting, this is something that Rossier also pays attention to, since it's a big issue in Quebec as well, or sorry, France as well, uh, where the kind of secularist laicite that discriminate against Islam by teaching that really there is no God, or at least he has no place in the classrooms, is extremely controversial, right? But there's no getting around the question of trying to devise an education system that's more inclusive by purely aestheticizing it. You have to, at a certain point, ask yourself, what's the kind of education or pedagogical model that would be most inclusive? And I think the way to settle that, circa both Rancière and Honneth, would be democratically. Right. You keep uh, using um, aestheticizing diminutively, which makes me think that you don't understand it. No, I'm, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with aestheticizing something. I'm saying that aestheticizing something in the way that Rancière does has its place when it comes to talking about how it is that we should include different voices that have been excluded for a very long period of time and I mean, not presume certain kind of intellectual authority to speak on behalf of others, right? I mean, but I do think that once we move beyond aestheticization into the realm of political theory, which is what Honneth does, that's a realm where we have to start making practical judgments about, for instance, what I'm going back to what I was talking before, what kind of pedagogical model is the most inclusive one? Yeah, but you, you no want to answer it. that, and Rancière doesn't want to answer that, because Rancière sure. wants the people to answer that when they come into conflict with the state. But you want to answer that for the state, for Ranciere now. No, no, I don't. But, and I've, I've maybe, said that I want this to be answered democratically, right? But I'm saying that there has to be an answer, right? Maybe I'm and wrong that, here, but my general take from what Ranciere was trying to do is almost reverse the direction, like not start with the normative claims, but rather have the normative claims follow from the aesthetic. Because when you, you think about aesthetics, right, there's not, it's not that there isn't normative claims in aesthetic. Aestheticizing something doesn't imply that you are getting rid of all of the normative claims in your discourse, right? Because when you think aesthetics, even if we're not talking about a theory of beauty, as what most people think of as aesthetics, you're thinking of aesthetics as a theory of perception, about how perception works, about what sorts of objects we should regard as admirable and what sorts of objects we should regard as not so admirable, right? And these are the sorts of things that are imagined in, say, literary worlds, which is why he refers to literature like in search of lost time in his in as a part of a political argument which seems very strange right but that's how what he's doing he's grounding normative claims in an aesthetic understanding as opposed to in a social sciences and social philosophical understanding, which generally starts with ethics, which has its own kind of normative claims. And then if you go into the logic and the sciences, they have their own sorts of normative claims as well. Like we're not talking about what Benjamin called the aestheticization of politics, which is exemplified yeah. by films like The Triumph of the Will, which just completely knocks morality straight out of politics. We're talking, we're still kind of talking here about the politicization of aesthetics, as Benjamin would call it, which is to make sorts of normative claims about aesthetics. But obviously, we have to be careful. And Rancière brings this up, right? Like when the working class people wanted to get into art and writing poetry and things like that, right? The normative assumption in that case was that they should be writing about things they know, like, you know, I don't know, living in the slums or doing their jobs. Yeah, painting their work boots. But they wanted to appropriate bourgeois themes. Themes, noble themes, romantic themes that seem proper to a different section of society. And that in itself has an implicit normative claim, but we're just not starting with the normative. You know, you forget normative, norma is a carpenter's square. 
And a Carpenter's square implies a kind of ratio. So what we're dealing with whenever we're talking about normativity is rationality. What is the legitimacy of claims to one rationality or multiple rationalities in our political discussions. So all that stuff can't just be ignored when we're saying we're aestheticizing something because it's not that simple when I assume, I mean, this is my just my take, it could be wrong. When we're dealing with someone like Ranciere, who's probably not the class clown, I think he's a pretty smart guy, he's probably thought of these things, right? Yeah, so I would need, wait, 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 we're way too heady okay. right now. I just need to at least get a crux that we can all talk about, and that's a good one to start on, is what are we talking about when we're talking about aesthetics for Ranciere? When we say we're dealing with the sensible, um, it's not really in a phenomenological sense, but it's also not separate from that. But I think the closest thing would be common sense. So Ranciere's big idea is that we can change common sense and that it's not only the powerful that change common sense. You can be a cobbler and be able to access, reform, shape common sense. Um, and not just yours, but like communally. So we're trying to get to a politics of the common sense, which means how do these things get generalized or normalized? And then how do you make them democratic and equal? So that's like square one. Anyway, someone else want to take it away? I feel like I, I, I feel like we may have lost a lot of people. So if we can try to build well, up from I, there. I mean, so, I mean, I really wanted to push on this idea of grounding, like, because to me, the most, in, or at least I thought, one at least one of the more interesting disagreements and maybe the central one is like what we've been talking about in terms of normativity and like i take eric's point about like the locating it in that aestheticization doesn't mean um you know like some sort of like like radically divorced from normative uh like ideal but i think you know to for me the difficulty i have with Ranciere, even though I agree with his analysis, like I actually think he's right about his dis what I take to be his descriptive project, which is exactly what Pills described. That like there's a that he's describing the process by which common sense, which includes the sensible and it includes what earlier we described as, you know, the ideological and institutional structures of of the of, of the everydayness the way that those things get ruptured and changed and reconfigure reconfigured in these like moments of rupture. I think that that's compelling and accurate. And I feel like that seems intuitive to me, but I think that, you know, there's a part where Ron Sear is disagreeing with Honneth's claim that for him, it's about uh, recognition. He says on page 119, you know, for me, it's quite dangerous to propound this idea of a kind of normativity defined in terms of the good relation to yourself it generates an idea of a struggle for recognition as a kind of reaction against a state of frustration. And I thought that, so this is basically Honneth's claim, I guess, is that like these political struggles are grounded in some kind of fe feeling like we're, are, we're not fitting into some broader structure and there's some sort of state of frustration. This is at least Ron Sierra giving Honneth. But then later, as I was saying earlier, right, he says, it's people don't struggle because they're trying to address some state of frustration in themselves. They struggle. And he says on page 120 to construct another world or, and that's when he uses Rose, the Rosa Parks example. And I guess like, that's the part where I feel like it feels like thin to me. Reconfiguration feels, of the sensible, like what but it literature feels, it feels performs. Thin, and right? it's like, it feels thin and it also feels like, well, is, why would we care about constru like constructing another world? It's like, is that good? But he refuses to say why we would want to construct another world. 
He's like, no, no, there's no, he's like, there's no uh, state of frustration with ourselves. That's dangerous to say that, but we just want to construct another world because that's what we do when we rupture the political. So like, but surely he wants to, surely Rosa Parks wants a different world because it's frustrating to live in a world where black people have to sit at the back of the bus. Like it just, it seems wrong to me to be like, that has nothing to do with uh, like like any state of frustration. Honest did have a very strong critique there, I think, of Ranciere, because Ranciere didn't want to like start with the idea of suffering. Yeah. And for Honneth, it acts as like a bridge, right, between like political discourse and what you were saying about you know this idea of having an incomplete and a complete self, I guess, mm-hmm. or sort of yeah. things matching up with the self. And he yeah. said, Yeah, Honneth accused if Ranciere wants to eject this idea of starting with struggle or at least use or uh, with uh, suffering or at least using it as a bridge between the sort of what does he call it like the individual and pathologies versus the political he says you you owe you owe us then an explanation about what is the driving force behind your ideas right it's not desire for equality because Ronci already said, no, that's just the definition of politics. That's not a desire. And it, so, and then it, but it doesn't start with suffering because suffering is a negative reactionary thing. So then like, what the hell is it, Ronci? And then he just says, it's, 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 it's you want to create a better world, but why? Or a different world, not even better. That's too normative. It's just trying to create. And it's like, what do you mean? And I that's mean, where I think that- It's good in itself, right? That's where he's sneaking <laughs> it's, it's, in. That's where they sneak <laughs> in the normativity, right? There. Yeah. That's, that's where they're, they're, they're that's smuggling it in. It. Yeah. I, I know you love this sneaking in thing. It sounds very nefarious, conspiratorial, but normativity does not need to be universalizable. They're not trying to avoid it for that reason. Like equality is not universalizable because it's always going to become a new status quo, a new police. But oh, okay. Look, look. The reason that it can't be normative as a first step is just like all. Our other favorite French pimps, they don't want Hegel. So if you ever start by going, Rosa Parks sat at the front of the bus in order to move history forward. Well, now fuck, politics is history again. So Ranciarian politics is not historical. It's spontaneous. So certain people, I guess you're one of them, are going to want the why in advance. Why are we doing this? So if your personal answer is... yeah. Uh, uh, we should do this because it's right, then you're probably a dialectician. But if your personal answer is something more along the lines of, I want to seize upon a moment where I can bear out my will and creativity in the world, then you may be a Ranciarian, whose critique of the police, in this sense, is similar to the the Nietzschean critique of Hegel's Here, I, I can give you an account, if you want, of how it is that a lot of these people bridge the gap between aesthetics and politics. Uh it's not particularly sophisticated, and the best iteration of it is given in Habermas's late book, um, Truth and Justification, I think is the name of it. Um, but one of the things that they point Did out is that- Did you say Habermas's late book? Late book, yeah. It's from 2001, Truth and Justification. It's a collection oh, of okay. essays. Oh, um, I, oh I'm his, sorry. His I thought you meant the late Habermas's book, or like still where alive. the book died. No, no. Yeah, that was like, I didn't- No, no. I'm expecting it any day now. <laughs> it's going to happen he, He's soon. releasing a- He's actually just releasing a 1,400-page book that apparently is actually much more- Marxist in its orientation than he's been since the 1970s. So just like Hanna seems to have felt the sting of not being radical enough, Habermas has seemed to decided that he's not radical enough at this point. They're done getting kicked around by podcasts. Yeah, exactly. He's too much of a square, so he's kind of responding to that. Uh, actually, Igor Chokobrad, uh 
pointed south. He apparently wrote an e- email to Igor saying that my new book is going to be more radical than my last. But, but anyway, the, the kind of argument yeah, that we got these people make is, <laughs> the, the kind of argument that these people make very simply is that uh, aesthetics constitutes a kind of cultural life world, and it's a very Hegelian idea from pe- which people draw grammars, symbols, and images. Uh, that they reconfigure and rearticulate in order to demand recognition, uh, both from other people, from state institutions, uh, and from various other kinds of cultural forces in society, right? And there's an indefinite quality to this, because of course, just like the cultural world of aesthetics is endlessly rich, so too will people reconfigure these symbols, grammars, and so on in endlessly various different ways. And there's a democratic dimension to this, because the argument that most of them will put forward is that, rather like what Rancière is doing, Uh, We should consider the different ways that people reassemble their grammars and aesthetic images uh, from an egalitarian perspective and not try to privilege one over the other, right? Um, Except that becomes really difficult because, of course, at some point you need to start to ask yourself, well, how is it that we take these kind of demands from recognition and translate them into political practice, right? So one of the examples given by Sheila Benabib, for example, um, at length is she'll point out that a lot of Marxists have criticized the notion of human rights, right, by saying... Human rights is just a bourgeois notion. Anytime you codify rights in the law, inevitably the state's going to be the one that decides what those rights are. So we should just abandon talk of rights wholesale, right? Uh, but Benavid will say, actually, people have been able to use the grammar of rights in a lot of very interesting ways, sometimes for extremely revolutionary causes, right? If you think about the French Revolution uh, and the demand for the universal rights of man, per se, right? Uh, and this shows you that you can take the grammar of an aestheticized concept like let right and employ it for democratic and even radical purposes without interpolating it in a system of control and power. Uh, And the problem is how to actually create a kind of social order uh, that allows people to do that on an indefinite basis uh, while still providing them with the minimal series of concrete institutions that's necessary to do that. And also a high level of material equality, since if they're not actually materially capable of engaging in these kinds of projects, then they're not going to be able to do so since most of them are going to be sitting there toiling away for capitalists day in and day out uh, rather than engaging in these kinds of acts of civic participation and rearticulation, right? Yeah. Uh, So there is a kind of link between aesthetics and between politics that they draw that's relatively sophisticated. Again, Habermas's account is better than Hollis, a lot better than Hollis, frankly. Um, I think it's really problematic in a lot of ways, right? But I think that the reason why it is that maybe Pills and I were having an argument is that I'm not trying to dismiss polit- aesthetics, and neither is Honneth, right? Uh, the disagreement seems to lie on how it is that you take, from Honneth's perspective, I think, would be how do you take the resources in an aestheticized life world and translate that into some kind of praxis, right? Democratic praxis. So one connection that I can bring up based on what Matt just said, this uh, aesthetics to politics bridge... Um, is the individual and how the individual gets rights and how the individual gets recognized. So so for Honneth, he's very concerned with being recognized or the subject being recognized. And Ranciere kind of goes, oh yeah, well, the state recognizes you. It's just going to call you, it recognizes you as a colonial subject if you're in Algeria and a citizen if you're born in France. So uh, for Ranciere, it's not that the state doesn't recognize you, it's that the state turns you in the kind of individual that gets recognized and then you're unequal. So I wondered what you guys thought about this debate about the individual, because this is one thing we've talked a lot about on this podcast in terms of identity, whereas Rancière is like, we don't want identity to be the normative 
bearer of rights. We want something else, something discursive. Whereas Haneth... It almost seems like he wants to deny it. Yeah, so you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I mean, so I think that... um, I think that Rancière's interpretation of what Haneth's up to, and actually... I wrote my like major paper for my master's in philosophy about Hanneth and Rawls. So, so I know Hanneth pretty well. And I know that he is not only concerned with how the individual is recognized by the state, but also this broader sense of the norms that I think, I think there's actually overlap in what, what Rancière means by the police, meaning like all the ways in which the everydayness is, you know, maintained ideologically, but also institutionally. And that's why Haneth has these three spheres of recognition, which we can take issue with. But like, you know, he is very much concerned with also just like how your your identity gets formed, not in terms of I mean, of course, the state's always going to have some sort of effect, but also like your, your the everyday way in which you sort of interact with people at the level of what you might call cultural value patterns. And I think that Haneth is concerned with changing those. And he wants to ground them in a kind of normativity of like subjective development, right? And 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 what he calls um, or what uh, you know, this kind of good relation to yourself. He wants to locate that um in like this Hegelian dialectical account of subject of subject development. Yeah, we call that the um, dialectic of recognition on here, right? Right, right. Yeah, the dialectic of recognition. So, and I think that. Um, the problem that I think Ron Sear has is he doesn't really like care about any of that, it seems, or doesn't want to talk about it specifically. He just wants to like issue the whole conversation of the individual and just wants to talk about, you know, vague things like I was crit- I was criticizing him earlier for just saying, well, people do these things. They rupture the existing orders to create a new world, construct something new. And it's like, but doesn't want to say whether or not that's good. But, and then the other thing what that I would that, say... What is it that Liz says? You know, bring something new into the world? It seems like yeah, it's just just, just because I guess that's intrinsically good or something. But I don't know. I mean, but of course they would never want to say that. Or I, I, I don't want to speak of Deleuze, but at least here for Rancière. Um, but I think there was a really interesting debate where Haneth responds to something Rancière says with saying, well, why can't we change society... Like, why does it have to be? And maybe he was misreading Rancière here a little bit, but he was basically asking, like, why do these changes to the existing what what Rancière calls the police order have to only take place in the context of this rupture? Right. Like, why can't you work within the system um, to like slowly erode on some understanding of identity? And I don't know, we could think of the example of like something like transgender identity or something. It's like. There's an I think there's I think at least there's an interesting question about like, you know, what happens that now there's like more recognition for transgender in the everyday culture today than there's ever been. Was that the result of a rupture or is that just a continuation of the already existing logic of our neoliberal uh, context? Right. But the, but the results if, from the perspective of being a transgender person is likely positive. Um, but like, was that a ch- was that a change? I'd be curious what you guys think. Yeah, was that a is... change in the configuration of the police, or was that some sort of an already existing logic being being the logic of it being extended to its natural yeah. uh, conclusion? It doesn't seem like that can happen for Ranciere. This is one of those um, those points that might put the radicals off of Honeth, though, because I think what you're getting at is his idea that instead of 
the whole like political intervention and the suspension of the political order he was talking about well why can't we have like an internal internal struggle where we reappropriate and reinterpret certain normative values like i don't know what you think of like he, he talks he gives us one example of the housewife and that's that's his example of somebody trying to like shirk off an identity that's being imposed on them and sort of reinterpret their possible role in politics or in society and then he talks about this idea of um yeah re like reinterpreting normative values like i I don't know we live in a profit driven society could we reinterpret that and he says you know this is this is what we might have traditionally called reform and then all the revolutionaries go oh fuck yeah exactly exactly (laughs) but i think but i think to be charitable to to haneth i think that his point is exactly what you said but I don't I don't think at least I don't think in that response he was denying that it's possible to also have these changes occur exactly as Ron Sierra says. The but his point was struggle. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But his point was just like, but it seems strange to be like, that's the only time it can change. Not not to say that those things don't change, not to say that, but to say that that is not political action. Like if you're already at the point where women can vote and where transgender people are recognized by the state that's because a lot of people have already done the aesthetic work of changing common sense, and those people did the politics. Well, here though, I think it's really important to okay, note. Well, the different- okay, I want to talk more about that in a second, but okay, I'll man, be quick. Ahead. Okay, I promise. I think it's really important to note the different traditions in which uh, Althusser, uh, sorry, with which Rancière and Hoth are operating, right? Uh, in the kind of context of the German Frankfurt School, particularly third generation Frankfurt School theory, Hannah Arendt becomes an extremely major figure. And she still is with people like uh, Honneth and Benebeet, right? And one of the things that Hannah Arendt foregrounds in all of her work that they all pick up on is that the only thing worse uh, than having a state oppress you is not having a state that's willing to oppress you, right? Being completely excluded from the political community and having no rights uh, that anybody is willing to guarantee, right? So I think Honneth would argue that demands for recognition on behalf of legal institutions and demands for rights for your cultural group are a necessary but not sufficient condition for the kind of more radical forms of political agitation that you're arguing. Uh, and the example you could point to would be something like uh, Algerians in France, right, which Rancière should be aware of, right? Uh, any of them would probably much prefer uh, to be recognized in the official religion by the French state with all the compromises that are entailed with that, uh, rather than being treated essentially as, as though they don't belong in France. Uh, and they're just going to eternally be othered uh, in that kind of civic context. And at its apex, this is going to lead to demands that they go home, like Marie Le Pen is saying. Right? Even that, was, sure. that was so, Matt being short. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, okay, the novelized so, version of that will be out next week. <laughs> so, yeah, you were saying like the systemic logic. I really I'm, I'm still I'm still want to pick up on this point that Pills made earlier. Um, is the thing that Ron Sierra is interested in. So I guess like, you know, because originally I framed it as sort of like a question. So the example of like transgender or like changes in the recognitional economy of society that happen from within the logic, I was I, I posed the question, right? So would that just not qualify as an actual change, an interruption in the police? Or or would it be would you conceptualize it that way? So I guess based on what you said, Pills, the answer would be like, no, because it's actually just a continuation of the systemic logic, right? Because like the expansion of like transgender rights or other things, that's just fitting into the logic, the systemic logic of the society we live in. It's not an authentic rupture 
Well, yeah, but, isn't that the same but, thing right? as saying like the the Declaration for the Rights of Women is based formally on the Declaration of the Rights of Man? Therefore, it is just based on the sort of formal, the, well, that's the formal logic thinking. of something that's already a kind of normative principle. He talks about love in the same way, kind it's of. It's a little as well, unfair right? to Mary Wollstonecraft. She was actually pretty original. But look, when when you're at the point, especially of legal recognition, that is. Uh, of police state interpolation, then at that point, yes, that is just a continuation of the police state. But the question is, how did we get there? And what political acts did it take to get there? How did it get to be common sense that women should have the right to vote? The suffragettes did that. They were the political actors there. Police state is still going to police. So when it comes to transgender recognition now in the same way if the laws change to recognize them then that means that politics is over and that politics has been you know 50 years in the making of work by activists by artists by people who broke like the laws stonewall riots by, in the 60s yeah by transgender people who came out in spite of the risk of ostracism and probably violence in a lot of cases. So they risk their safety and well-being because that is the better world. And that act of coming out to society in the face of a lot of a bad shit that's going to get thrown your way and happen to you, that is the political act. So when you're at the point where fucking Justin Trudeau is wearing a transgender pin on TV, then you know politics has long been over at that point. Right. Yeah, but I, I think that I don't think that's I think that fits. No, hold on. I think that fits with uh with what with you know, I think Honneth would just say, Well, yeah, of course. I mean, those acts so the acts themselves are political moments, right? When it's dangerous because it's and that is leading to like a reconfiguration of the of the common sense that pe with which people perceive uh transgender people, which then makes it possible for the state to change is what you're saying because of those actual concrete acts that were dangerous uh, in that moment. Um okay. I yeah, I think that I think that makes sense and I think that Honneth would still make room for that but i think what he would say would he be like the reason that those acts matter is because of like a recognitional uh, demand right. that is motivating those and acts, because they right? got mm -hmm. rights in the end so han is like okay it's good they got rights in the end now they're recognized well it's not just about rights it's about I know, recognition I'm sorry, I'm but he, they're, now no, they're no, but i'm sorry you keep saying that no but you see no but it's not just respected but i think that it's the exact same thing like implicit in Honneth is a concern with a change in the common sense values that were that those acts required and the reason why it matters to have like regular people uh see transgender people as different because before obviously when they had to do those political acts and come out and be you know at risk that was because people the common sense was such that it looked down or or marginalized transgender people much more than it still does now um but the reason that Honneth would would support that it's not because of rights, but he's actually concerned with those common senses. The common sense is the thing that makes better recognitional economy possible. I, well, I, I didn't get that well, from this reading, though. Okay. I so, think the problem that, with these these examples is they can both appropriate them with their conceptual apparatuses, right? right? Honneth can say, "No, that's an example of someone completing and becoming." 
recognized and moving towards the, this concept of freedom that he has. Ron Sierra can say, no, that's actually someone subjectivizing outside of like the identity circuit and moving towards a concept of equality. They can both take the examples and run them through their system and account for them in different ways that both sound pretty cogent to me. But then the problem yeah, then becomes something on a theoretical conceptual level if they can both just do this very easily whenever an example is Real quick up. though, Pills. Real quick. So you're right that it's not specifically in this text the way that I stated it, but it is implied because his concern is about the self-relationship and all the, all the conditions that lead to a healthy self-relationship which would include the common sense of society. He 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 uh, fleshes that out more in like his other works, um, but you're right that it wasn't stated the way that I did in this text, but that's all implied by his his dialectic of recognition uh, um, for Hanukkah. All right, well, it sounds good. I'd be a little less hostile if he stated it that way instead of being like, hey, you guys did it. Good job, Rosa Parks. You did what I now say you should have done. But then what's with Ron Sierra just saying that, like, not wanting to admit that, like, a, a constructing another world is good for a reason? Like, that's just weird well, to me. Well, can know. you point me to the reference, maybe? So it's page 120, 119, 120, when, he's, when Ron Sierra is responding to the idea where he's, it's, it's actually, like, kind of, like, bottom quarter. He says it's quite dangerous to propound the idea of, an, of a kind of normativity defined in terms of a good relationship to yourself. And then he goes on to talk about a female candidate running for office because she did it not because she was frustrated and had a bad relationship with her relation to herself, but because she wanted to construct another world. And then he says Rosa Parks also, right? She sat there not because uh, she was tired um, after a day of work. It was because of her right. I have an um, inkling that this and the right of all her is about something we have not explained yet, which is Ron Sierra's concept of the partition of the sensible. Yeah, that's important. This is linked to that, like, totally, and we we haven't gone over it yet, and I don't think I can explain it. I, I also wanted to point out that I think there's an important sense in which we also have to acknowledge that the granting of rights uh, by a state or another institution can sometimes precede changes in the census communis, uh, and this is something we talk a lot about in the socio-legal literature, right? Uh, do changes in the law reflect changes in culture, or do changes in culture reflect changes in law? And actually, there's been a lot of empirical research done on the subject, and it turns out it's a lot more complicated than just assuming cultural changes precede legal changes. So, for instance, in a lot of countries, attitudes towards homosexuality were uniformly pretty negative on behalf of the majority of people until there was a legal change permitting it, after which people's minds just changed, right? They said, well, if the law says it's okay, then it must be okay. Uh, there are similar empirical examples that refer to drug use, uh, similar laws that pertain to abortion use. Uh, and probably the most prominent example, aside from the uh, LGBTQ one, is the death penalty. Most people supported the death penalty until their states prohibited it, right? So I do think it's actually possible to grant people a group's rights, and a lot of activists demand this even in the face of public pressures and the sense of communists, and then hope that there are going to be transitions in the broader culture afterwards, right? Sorry, and are you using that word in the Aristotelian and the uh, Thomist sense of like... Um of like uh, being able to make like cognitive judgments about objects that share similar qualities. So that's what census communist means. I don't think Sorry, I mean, it doesn't yeah. mean common sense like we say today. No, yeah, I'm using it in the kind of colloquial sense that we were talking about it earlier on, right? But you know, the, the basic idea is you that just and I think Latin it's a, in for fun. 
Yeah. Well, it's a fun. It's a I, fun. I knew what you meant, and I li- I thought it was cool. And then Eric came in and was like, "Excuse me, doesn't mean that at all." Excuse me, say it in the Latin. So say I'm I'm using common sense in the sort of pseudo pragmatist sense of American uh, philosophy. I enjoyed well, the, I enjoyed the. The Latin. reason I think it's important though is to Victor's point, right? If, take somebody like take the civil rights movement, right, in the American South. The civil rights movement was extremely unpopular in the American South, and it was only tepidly popular in the American North, right? Uh, nowadays, it's granted this kind of almost hagiographic status uh, in American culture, right? But that's not the way it was at the time, right? Uh, and one of the things that's important to remember is that it took a lot of activists putting pressures on political elites to grant rights to people of color uh, before society was willing to change, right? So sometimes I get a little bit wary of this kind of argument that we need to wait for cultural changes uh, to lead to the granting of rights. Um, I don't think that's. I, what, I don't think that's what Rutzier is saying. Yeah, okay. right? I'm just kind of cautioning that. Generally. So what you're saying, I think what you're saying could be possible, but would be definitely the exception, not the sure. rule. Which is that a politician could actually do a political act. It, yeah. it could, in theory, be possible, according to Rutzier, of course. Well, some great politicians do. I mean, look at Martin Luther King, right? Like Martin Luther King was such a morally upstanding figure that even in the face of tremendous public opposition, he was able to enact meaningful change in the United States. Right? He's and not it's a worth politician, though. Well, political figure. Sorry. Yeah, not a politician. Civil rights activist, right? It's the same thing for activists against the death penalty, right? The death penalty was hugely popular in most countries. Still is in some senses. Uh, but they really put a huge amount of moral pressure on state institutions uh, to say that this is a violation of human rights and they were successful, right? And I don't think anybody here would be complaining about that, right? Um, so I think it's sometimes more complicated than just saying we need changes in the kind of cultural attitudes. Sometimes there's things that activists can do that... Well, all, the th- all those things interlink, right? Yeah. All the, and I think that's actually Hanit's point in yeah. his other yeah. work, that all these things, the legal level, the cultural value patterns level, and then also like the private, like like our own intersubjective relationships with our loved ones, like all these spheres of recognition interlink and interact with each other to create like the conditions of, of like of our of a healthy self relationship. Yeah, just to give an example that we all know, of, we should all be familiar with. Two thousand four, gay marriage gets decriminalized here in Canada. Most people I knew were pretty homophobic uh, back in the early two thousands, which is not that long ago, right? And there's a lot of data to say that most society, uh, most of Canadian society, was pretty homophobic at the time. Uh, nowadays, flash forward 15 years later, there was a change of the law and it proceeded to change in cultural attitudes because homophobia is now considered just as akin to racism uh, in terms of something that's culturally taboo. And thank God for that. Right. Uh, so, you know, there Again, are examples the, the we can all point to where LGBTQ movement goes back to in the States, the Stonewall riots. And there's a similar event in Toronto, actually, in Canada that launched the movement here as well. So. They've they raided all the Turkish baths and they did the same sort of police oppressive shit they did in the states and it it, it kind of uh, congealed a movement. So I mean, well, I think wherever it- you start that, you have your distribution of the sensible and then you have a dissensus which is created outside of that. And, and that's why I think we can all agree. Fuck the police. That's the outcome of this entire discussion. Was ultimately <laughs> I like easy. how he chooses right, the word the police, the police too. I, it's funny how he chooses that word police yeah. it's like men it's like design it's like tailor-made for like for like edge edge lord seduction it has an aesthetic appeal for uh activism right, right? but that's yeah, why for i think that's why Honeth has such a hard time dealing with ron sierra because he's like this guy just redefined politics he can't do that 
He says that something to that effect. That's my summary. Yeah, but, I mean, I agree with you. But, I actually thought that Hannes' reactions were pretty bad. Like, I thought I I felt like I had thought a thought of better critiques of Roncière than Hannes himself did myself. Yeah, but that's yeah. that's like kind of lazy. Roncière obviously wants politics to have nothing to do with the polis, uh, or or to be undermining of the polis, and it makes sense why that would be a good. Um, in general, not a historical good. I think that needs to be qualified. Not a historical good, but to see your, to see the world reflect you, I think you have to claim that that's a good. Because otherwise, what would be the point of doing aesthetics? Right. I mean, and I don't think that's smuggled in, though. I think that why maybe he doesn't state well, it. I don't know. I, I mean, don't know. there's a couple places like so. Even on so on one twenty six, there's another moment when they're talking about suffering, right? And like Ron Sears really insistent on being like we don't have this point about suffering in common at all and and he says on uh you know he says the logic of the police uh, of police to define the wrong on a pathological basis um it's not necessarily because people are s- suffering that they act politically acting politically very often comes because some forms of ruptures appear possible yeah like an so, opportunity like, i just almost. think that that's that's just seems like weird to me that it's just like it's all it's almost yeah it sounds a bit um deterministic it's just like just because there's an opportunity people are gonna take it i don't know and it's just like he doesn't want to admit that that like it it i mean i guess yeah it depends on how you define suffering i suppose but i was being like charitable to haneth and thinking that suffering has to do with a deficiency in all of these spheres of recognition that include culture and and common sense and all these things and it just seems to me that mostly i mean i i don't understand how you could say that people just blindly are like well there's an opportunity to change things i'm going to take it but like not have any there's no cops on the any, street Let's like smash. there's nothing behind it like like some demand like that that just seems like very strange to me but you can um, see why right like an, you know why it's like if, if something's determined then it's not political anymore if you're just doing something because you're uh, an instinctless a flesh creature bumping into things then it doesn't matter the only thing yeah. the only way that that can matter is if it can be spontaneous for you yeah i think for Rancière, what moves equality along as well in his sense of everyone having equal capacity to participate in politics what moves that along is disagreement whereas with honeth mm-hmm. what what leads towards freedom and recognition is agreement and consensus right so they have diametrically opposed views on that right and this reproduces a lot of what was different between uh Habermas and Lumen a generation before them right like Lumen thought Hib. that when consensus emerged this is when society just dies because nobody there's no more tension right whereas what the point of communicative action which is Habermas's theory that Honeth is now taking over is forming rational consensus which must be based on agreement on normative principles so if you have that sort of radical challenge to this, okay, yeah, seeming sensible position, which produ- which forces Ranciere into some pretty saying some like strange things, like we've been pointing out, but it makes sense, you know, if if vigilance and not losing the gains that we've already made is is something that requires constant disagreement with what's going on, then it makes sense to me. I don't know. And if you want to hear a slaughter of a debate, a slaughter of a fight night, it's Lumen versus. Habermas, who didn't even know that his pants were being pulled out from underneath him. I want to say, I think we should I'm take biased. this as an opportunity. 
I think we should take this as an opportunity to propose another uh, podcast on Alain Bajir, actually, because I think, Victor, if you're interested in this kind of idea of an eventual politics or politics of Russia, as it's sometimes called, Ranciere's is like reasonably interesting, but Bajir is really the one who theorizes on this and systematizes it in their own most robust possible way, because he really does describe these kind of revolutionary moments, an ontological significance in like the capital O sense of the word, right? Which is that the state always operates to kind of establish an order of being that it wants. And what constitutes a genuine politics is the event where the order of being breaks down and you realize that you can recreate the world, right? And Sure, that sounds interesting. It is. I mean, you can read his little book, Metapolitics, on this, but I, I think it, it cashes out a lot of what Ranchier is getting. We've got to stick with that versus theme, oh, though, right, if we If we do Bad You in verses, we got to bring in uh, Deleuze, of course. Deleuze versus Bad You. And then we can it tag team in yeah, Zizek I, versus Deleuze because Zizek takes Bad You's side. I really need, I need to read Deleuze just because why is it that everyone online loves Deleuze? It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's by oh, far no. the most popular. Eric, I, I thought you had to leave. What's I going on here? I feel our street cred fading away. Yeah, uh, no, I must say that's a pretty uh, it's a pretty deep power move suggesting what our next reading should be live on the air. Kudos. Well, well we're not I just think <laughs> if we're going to talk about this kind of eventual <laughs> politics or politics of rupture, I think it's best to always try to find somebody who espouses the idea in its most coherent possible term. I, yeah, really does and you it. keep saying that, Matt. You haven't you just because you like someone better doesn't mean they are better. Yeah, sure. But I mean, I, I thought you would agree with this, right? <laughs> no like, disagreement. No, no. But I, I think that there's no doubt that Badiou, as a systematic philosopher who talks about these things, is more comprehensive than Rossier is, right? Well, I mean, it, it's not that Rossier is better or worse. It's just that he incorporates this into a bigger project than Rossier does. And trying to figure out how this eventual politics has become popular in the late 21st century, I think that... It's an arguable that Badger has played a much bigger role in that than even someone like I Rossier. actually like Rancière quite a lot, to be honest. I know it sounds, and maybe it doesn't sound like that, but like of all the edgelord, like political theorists, <laughs> like he's like my favorite yeah, one because, uh, because I, I actually, I think you that, to so hate to me, because he does all the things that you, off, that you normally complain to, about. So to be honest with you, the thing, the thing that I really like about Rancière and like, you know, I think maybe, I, I know we're, maybe we're getting close to the time to, to end it and the, and the podcast, but you know, the thing that I really like about him is the claim that like this resistance to the politics has to be momentary um, and that there's always going to be reconfiguration of the police order that like you can't have. And, and I think the reason I like it is because I first read him in the context of other people who have this, I think really like cringe dream about like this kind of perpetual political mobilization where you're always putting pressure always. And they think that, Oh, maybe we can get to like a fully unalienated, politics where there's like direct where we get rid of all the things and i what i like about ron Sierra is i read him at least as saying well that's not really possible that's never going to be possible because always spontaneously we return to some sort of a police order where things get routinized and common sense becomes smoothed over and we and you can only ever achieve these moments and that seems right to me so like as a kind of a descriptive account i really like him and i think he offers something interesting yeah i mean robert dow once said that of all the emotions that have been most underestimated by philosophers and in particular political theorists, boredom is the one that's been paid the least attention to. Uh, and 
what I like Ranciere for is his politics is fundamentally one that's committed to an anti-boredom, right? Anytime things get stultified, anytime things get calcified, somebody, you know, as Pell said, is going to come along and say, this is an opportunity for me to smash things up and shake it up, to bring something new into the world, right? And that's I think sad. any critical theorist is always going to have a little bit of sympathy for that. It's our Benjamin quote, boredom is the songbird that hatches the egg of experience and a rustle in the bushes will scare it away. <laughs> this is a politics of creativity and i'm happy that the two politics guys got something out of it because often your, your concern is well what do we what do we do tell me give me the model give me the structure give me the thing but if the structure is always don't get caught in structure then uh that's a different type of narrativization of the process of politics which isn't really political theory anymore it's kind of a i don't know what you'd call this yeah theory well, I think <laughs> well, I think for me it was useful. It was useful for me to really think about uh, Runcier as offering a more of a descriptive account. Like, so that's that's the the way in which I find him to be like useful, um, because I just think he's. I think his description of of how that process occurs, and I think there's a way of even reading history to be uh, to be pretty consistent with what he talks about, like the history of political struggles. Like, I think there's just a lot to like in what he's saying about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of who am I going to go to for like actually adopting some like political convictions? I mean, Ron's here to me, it seems very thin um, other than like, but, 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 but that, I, but that's not why I like him anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. I, this yeah. is the thing. I, I, Pills and I started off by kind of arguing kind of heatedly about this. And th this is the thing. I do politics, right? So I'm always trying to interpret how, interpret how it is that this can be incorporated into a kind of more concrete politics. You write but about I mean, politics. Just, Let's be real. Sorry? You write sure. about politics. Yeah, sure. But I mean, that's not to say that I don't appreciate the, uh, the aesthetic dimension to life a lot, right? And quite frankly, this really applies to actually these essays because I thought that Han, this essay, even though I tended to agree with it a little bit more, was really boring, right? I just kind of read it and I nearly fell asleep twice because I'm like, oh, he's just saying this old thing again. Ross Ayer's essay was lively and vital and had interesting examples and was written in a pretty crisp fashion. So, I yeah, Hannes, uh, Hannes' essay was a bit of a snooze fest. Right? Yeah, I admit, yeah, Hannes was, and he was, and and I it's also agree yeah. with Pills. We had a little exchange uh, in in our PillPod Messenger group and. I absolutely agreed with Pills that that Hanneth seemed a little bit uh, thick-headed and like didn't really understand some of the points that Ranciere was making, and I was like, "This is just a pretty bad reading of your interlocutor." Well, he also admitted that he said, "I, I don't. I think there must be an argument here, but it might be one of these three. I'm just not sure which." And yeah, it was yeah, none true. of them. It's true. Did <laughs> did you also? Do you guys also pick up on the fact that it always seemed like Hanneth was trying to find, as I guess a good liberal always tries to find, like points of agreement? He was like, I feel like we agree on this. I feel like we agree on this. And then Ron Sear never did that once. He never was like, yeah. I think we agree on well, this. Well, sometimes <laughs> it's like always the danger, right, when I agree with you, but I actually didn't understand what you said. So I'm just saying I agree with you to shut down the conversation. That always seems to be the case. But then you guys notice there's a there's a interesting part where Ranciere was talking about love and Honneth picked up on it and thought it was pretty awesome. And he, he like, he, he spoke about it. I guess this is the transcript of a dialogue at some points, but yeah, he spoke about it afterwards saying like that, that was a pretty cool thing, but I didn't totally understand it, but it seemed like a normative thing that Ranciere was doing, right? He was saying like, this is how love works, not like the Winnicott sort of love between a child and a mother and the mother is the transitional object until the child learns to uh, love in a socially correct manner. 
but he's talking about love as like inherently multiple as a sort of aesthetic mm. experience of narrowing something down to an individual and constructing the object of your desire and and what like he he talks about this idea of seeing like a gaggle of girls coming along on the beach and you sort of fall vaguely in love but like not with any one of them in particular just with like the whole sort of vague scene <laughs> and then as you sort of like the artist who <laughs> you construct the world or you construct the object the w one of them eventually sort of fits into it it's like a dialectical process on an aesthetic level and and Honneth actually seemed to really like that it was kind of an interesting exchange at one point i liked it i was just mm. imagining some just perverted frenchman sitting with his cigarette <laughs> he's like 65 he's 65 on a on a beach in southern france and there's a bunch of girls walking forward and he's like Oh, hello, bonjour, <laughs> Je pense que je tombe amoureux de vous. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we, could, so we could have a creative act together, right? Yeah, yeah but lots I, of body hair going around. I, I like French theory for that, also, right? Because, and Victor, I'm sure you, maybe you'll agree with me on this, maybe you won't. But one of the things that you'll very rarely see political theorists who aren't Martha Nosebaum uh, doing is talking about love, right? At most, you get civic friendship, right? That's the kind of idea we're supposed to aim for. This old Aristotelian idea. And it's really nice that French theorists are a lot more less afraid of tackling those kind of big emotions and politicizing them uh, in a kind of important way, right? Because yeah, it's true, but it's also worth noting that one of Honneth's uh, spheres of recognition is actually like love. Well, yeah, that, that's why yeah, love, he takes that over from Winnicott yeah. and that sort of psychoanalytic yeah, right. tradition. But love then just sort of boils down to an intersubjective relationship. Yeah, that's that we true. have to learn that's how true. to do right, otherwise we become uh, maladapted to uh, social norms. You know who else talks about love? Jesus, Badu, who Matt has <laughs> committed us to podcasting about. I just thought Ron Sears' take on love was much more like rich and aesthetically yeah, exciting. And then from there you want to go, yeah, politics of love, baby. I love, did you guys see Ron Sears' picture on his Wikipedia? It's just like him standing in a meadow with like, it's just, it's a strange photo. Yeah, it looks like he's reaching out you to the stars see? or something. Or he's super high. <laughs> An old man Instagram fail. He's like, yeah, he's it's, got it's one arm. strange. It's like, he looks a little looks lost. Like he looks his, a little One arm is just hovering. Back to him. He's got a pretty loose sweater. It's a strange, it's a strange it's image. It's like his giant eagle's about to come land on his arm again. He's just cast it out. I mean, let's, let's get real. He's clearly very, very high. Or at least he's had a couple <laughs> bottles of wine. His granddaughter was like, go out into like the meadow. I'm going to take a picture of you. And then he kind of drunkenly or highly stumbled there. And then she'd snap the picture. And it's iconic. You know, that's a true act of love. Or he escapes from his uh, retirement <laughs> community. He's, just, he's in a field. Oh, see, he's he's Algerian. That kind of brings some of oh, that into he? context. I didn't even see that. He's Deridian. Oh yeah. He's, yeah. Everyone from Algeria is Derrida. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, shall we he wrap it up? Yeah, I think that was pretty good. Yeah, I'm. I made it through to the end. Sorry for the exchanges of of lectures in some cases but uh i think i think i don't know who i don't know i, I felt like most of us are i think who who did that who's responsible for that i i did one i think yeah <laughs> i'd say it's very clearly eric eric shut up. <laughs> can you just shut the fuck up and make shorter points please you love uh, it you all love it all right uh, are we declaring a winner 
I mean, no. I think, I think, I, I, in my opinion, I felt as though they were um, quality or free. They matched some blows, uh, but I think that, uh, and I also think that they both kind of talked past each other. But I, so I don't know. For me, it feels a little bit like a draw, um, with good points on both sides. I found it, but but Haneth being more boring, so maybe I give an edge to Rams oh, here. Centrist, bit of a wash. Oh, centrist. Uh, I just a bit of a wash. Haneth lost because he's a Habermasian who showed up to a debate. So that's a big L. He's not trying book. to win a debate. He's trying to reach consensus on what the right thing to do is. Right? If he wins the debate, he loses because he devalues his own political commitments. No, the politics of disagreement. I reassert it here mm. and always. Yeah, I. Right. I, I didn't actually know much about either of them when I came in, but I feel like my sensibilities match up with Ranciere's a little more. Honneth did mm -hmm. have some extremely important points and valiant criticisms, but Ranciere just had some awesome points about yeah. recognition and love and all the rest of it. So I don't know. I think I, I don't know. But in terms of like who wins and, and like... What's what's a better basis for addressing injustices? Is it is it Ranciere's theory of equality or, or Honus' theory of uh, recognition? I would I would say both leave a lot to be desired. Yeah, I would hesitate to declare a winner because while my sympathies lie more with Honus, I also thought that like Victor, it was an extremely boring essay. So I'm unwilling to actually say that it beats out Ranciere's because even though I found Ranciere's kind of thin on the specifics. At least I wasn't bored, and I did think the stuff on love was moving and interesting and important. Uh, and who doesn't like talking about, you know, allowing more people to narrativize? So I'm actually going to give it to Ranciere. I like All right, Ranciere. Ranciere is the winner. And next time you want to pick a political text, uh, we could just read the side of a mayonnaise bottle. Just the ingredients <laughs> list would... <laughs> Result in the same outcome. Did you really hate this this much, Pills? Did you really hate it this much? No, I, no, I felt like I, you kind of enjoyed I gotta, this. I gotta be a dis or I gotta extend the politics of disagreement to your to your know. reading choices. <laughs> also, real mayonnaise or uh, salad dressing sauce? No, just uh, Miracle Whip. McChicken just sauce. Straight up Miracle Whip. Miracle Whip. Anyway, yeah, don't dressing. ever 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 talk. Use that. I'll peace All out, right. guys. We're, we're, yeah, we're, God. We're, yeah, later. <laughs> All right. Fatality.